0: Hello, glad to see see you here, and um, did everyone get here on time, the time you're expecting to get here? I I live in Don Creek, it's about 55 minutes, edge of Melbourne, so I gave myself 55 minutes and um, yeah, it took me a lot longer, so I'm a bit, I was running to get here as well. <laughs> um, not used to driving in the inner city, but it's really good to be here. Um, we're gonna be sharing on a, a really big topic. And tonight, uh, you're gonna get the real background, uh, a real orientation to the, to the subject. And the people tomorrow are not gonna have the f- same advantage. So thanks for coming out. And I hope, um, it gives you a real insight into this, this big problem. And, you know, I wasn't quite sure how to start this series. You know, it's, it, we're talking about the problem of evil. And it's a fine line to take when you're talking about the problem of evil, um, without getting all of you totally depressed. So I thought, wow, how, how, how am I gonna do this? And so what I decided to do, I would just go and, and look at the news headlines. And I just, um just went on, uh, one website and just, just a few minutes and looked at what was there. And you know, there were a couple of good stories. You know, um, Nick Curios, one. And then he, he lost he won against Nadal. and then he lost. and there was a few uh, human interest stories. but overwhelmingly, there were stories of pain, misery and suffering, and they were linked to stories of crime and, and violence and abuse and manipulation and cruelty and to be blunt, evil. what the website was about. that's what the news site was about overall. and it was uh, a bit overwhelming. Um, and so, just just some of the ones, and, and these are ones that have been happening for you. You've you've probably been tracking with these. So ISIS, or now it's you know the the uh, Islamic State of Iraq and Syria, now known as the just the Islamic State. This um group declared the the caliphate, and they are now in large control of large parts of Syria and Iraq. But they have been killing so many people. I think June was one of the worst months. Um, over two thousand people killed. A lot of summary executions, a lot of mass shootings um there's uh this big cliff pit in Syria, and they found three hundred bodies at the bottom of it and um they are actually you know families and children have been fleeing um if you steal, you get your hand cut off if you steal again they 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 execute you and now they're executing people by crucifixion and there's there's horrific pictures there's horrible videos and it's this is astonishing what is uh, happening there. And um, then, um, so just bring up uh, the next picture. And then, a famous ce- celebrity that everyone until now had thought the very best of, greatly loved, was found to be a manipulative, opportunist abuser of children and women in general. And um, the worst thing is he didn't seem to be that troubled by it, people observing. And uh, now more and more women are coming forward about what this man did. And then I looked again, and then there was the... You've heard of the Ebola virus. Who's heard of the Ebola virus? It's this uh, virus that breaks out every now and in Africa, and it's a horrific, horrific uh, virus. So far this year, there's been um, 760 cases, confirmed 467 people have died. It's mainly in Guinea, Liberia, and Sierra Leone. And I was uh, looking at um, this and there was a doctor working over there, uh, Dr. Fisher, he's from North Carolina, and he just had been sending some emails home to his family. And I just wanted to read you a bit of what he he wrote and um, it was really disturbing. He says, today was a pretty tough day. One of the first two patients I admitted on April 30 died. I walked into his room and he was on the floor, half naked, surrounded by bloody um, emesis and diarrhea. I put him back in bed, bathed him, and put fresh clothes on him, and as I finished, he died. It's pretty emotional to bathe a 27 year old man who was incredibly strong and rendered completely helpless. His next sister, his sister is next door and will likely die in the next hour. This is all in front of other patients in the room, many of whom are family members or neighbors. The despair is suffocating. My computer's running out of batteries. Sorry. For more to come. And I just read that and there's some pictures and this isn't the name, but... They have to cover up when they're dealing such a... It, it can be transmitted through fluids, body fluids. And then there was the kidnapping and murder of three Israeli uh, teenagers. And then then the reprisals from Israel. Five Palestinians dead and hundreds put in prison. There was fighting in the Ukraine. And then there was murder after murder after murder. Um, there was stories about women forced into prostitution. <coughs> bodies that were found burnt in a house fire. Commen and fraudsters. A building collapsed in India, killing um, over 10 people. Floods in Brazil. 50,000 people had to be evacuated and people killed. And then... Um, Peter, um, Gresh, is it? The Australian journalist, journalist, uh, jailed for seven years in Egypt for being a reporter. And, and look, there was a whole lot of other stuff. And I, I, I didn't pick the worst, I just picked some of the things that were there. And, um, there was so much more of it. And the sheer variety and diversity and, and constant, constancy just threatens to overwhelm you when you when you're looking at it and I mean i don't mean to overwhelm you but this is actually our world and and i I've deliberately dropped details not there's a whole other there was actually some other stories and I thought oh, i 'm just not going to tell i'm not going to share that it's just too too grotesque but all around there's um, pain and suffering now um ultimately I want to be hopeful and in this series i, I it does have hope in it but we have to um, start here because this is where we find ourselves um, and you know in australia we're sort of protect, protected from this i um, not completely but um, more the more harsh and extreme elements are not happening here but only it's only a difference by degree because terrible things happen here and in your own lives in the lives of your families you've probably had some pretty terrible things uh, happening um, pain and suffering and evil don't discriminate. Everyone is touched and affected by, the, by them somehow. Um, although, some people seem to bear more of it than others, and, and that's also disturbing. And so what it does, it, it, it leads everyone to this one world word, question. And you know what the question is? Why? So all of us, we see this and we go, why? Why? Um. It's so unfair. It doesn't have, it have any purpose. It could have been different, um, and and we ask this question, and it's either either um, filled with uh, emotion of like anger or or, or bitterness or just heartbreak. And we ask this question, why? And it's it's um, linked to another question, and it's just the addition of one more word, and it's a very an- ancient question, and in, and it goes, why, God? Why God? Why? And, and this one has been asked for millennium, and it uh, occurs in, in the Bible as well. I just want to read a few verses. Um, first verse is in Jeremiah. So James, if you could just bring this up. And Jeremiah, he's the prophet, and he says, "Righteous are you, O Lord, when I complain to you. Yet I would plead my case before you. Why?" Does the way of the wicked prosper? Why do all who are treacherous thrive? You plant them and they take root, they grow and produce fruit. You are near in their mouth and far from their heart. And then another prophet, um, Habakkuk, who come over, he asks, O Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear? Or cry to you, oh, violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see iniquity, evil, and suffering? And why do you idly look at wrong? Destruction and violence are before me, strife and confusion, contention arise, so the law is paralyzed and justice never goes forth. For the wicked surround the righteous, so justice goes forth perverted. And so here they are in the scripture asking the same question. Why? God, why so inactive? Why do you allow evil? Why do you just sit there? And why is it going on for so long? So this is called the problem of evil. Uh, Sometimes the problem of pain and suffering. And it's a particular topic in philosophy and theology. It's one one of the biggest questions around. When you think about it, you know, there's some really big questions. Origins, meaning of life, why is there evil? This is one of the big ones. Now, the most common version of this question uh, appears in David Hume's book. Um, this is the one most cu- quoted. He was a, um, a uh, 18th-century skeptic Scottish uh, philosopher, and he attributes it, attributes it to um, a Greek philosopher, Epicurus. Although it's probably not from him. Um, but I've got got it here. Classic. Is God willing to prevent evil, but not able? then he is not omnipotent. So he's not all-powerful. Is he able but not willing? Then he is malevolent. He's not good. Is he both willing and able? Then whence comes evil? Is he neither able nor willing? Then why call him God? So this is called the, the logical problem of evil. It's a trilemma. Because there's three things. There's God. He's all powerful. God is all good, but evil exists. And, and the claim is that they contradict. You can't have all three, affirm all three of them at the same time. And this is the uh, logical problem of evil. Now, notice this is a little different to the um, the Bible writers. They experience the problem of evil as a tension um, that doesn't call into the exi- call into question the existence of God, but rather either God's Attributes or his activity, his, either his character or what he's doing. It questions his, his wisdom. Like, what are you up to, God? That's how the Bible puts it. But in the hands of, of skeptics, it changes and it becomes a question about God's existence. Well, maybe God doesn't even exist. Um, so it's the, the problem of evil. Now, it's a huge topic, and um, I, even though we're going to do quite a few meetings on it, I can only just touch on it. It's so massive. And I won't do it justice. So let me tell you that, I won't do it justice. It's impossible, I don't know anyone who can. But I just hope that I can throw some light on it and um, and that you can take something and you can grab something and you can start to find your way. So that's my, that's my goal. Now, believers in God have responded to the question of, of the problem of evil with what's called theodicies. I don't know if you've heard about that, but a theodicy. and um, A German philosopher coined the word and it 's from two words theo Greek for God, and from decay, which means righteous or justice and so it 's to justify God in the face of evil, a theodicy and uh, we 'll look at some of these and they attempt to relieve the trilemma that 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 seeming contradiction and and then, and what they do is they look at it in detail now the problem of evil can then be broken into um, some more uh, sort of elements, I think i 've got to just come over to the next slide so there's the problem of pain and suffering that is what you feel and what you experience okay and it 's usually a result of these next two the problem of moral evil and the problem of natural evil so moral evil is what um, moral creatures do when they commit certain acts so this is what humans do. These are th- things like what we might call sins, or things like lying. Moral evil can actually really destroy someone's life. Crimes, some of the worst, you know, like rape and murder. Um can be large-scale things like genocides or wars, because these are the decisions of people, or um, smaller things like the, uh, an in- assault on an individual by another individual. You know. It can involve people who are clearly innocent children or abused, or how humans treat animals, sometimes, cruelty. These are all moral evils, and they cause pain and suffering. But there's another class, natural evils, and these are things that people don't do, but they cause pain and suffering, and and they're they're clearly something that uh, appears to be wrong. Earthquakes, tsunamis, bushfires, tornadoes. Um, Lots of people suffer, but no one actually caused it. Diseases. There are certain diseases we bring on ourselves, but there's others that that just happen. Uh, Ebola is one. Um, And the the other thing is, if you look at nature, nature's really cruel. Animals destroy animals in in ingenious ways. Now, no human's doing it, and animals aren't morally capable, but there's just cruelty all around. And then, of course... um, what often happens is you get a combination of of moral and natural evil. So, for example, you get an earthquake, but you get human human. Um, so you get developers that build dodgy buildings, you know, with um, bad materials. And when the earthquake comes, the the houses collapse and kill a lot of people. And it wouldn't have happened if they'd followed the building code. So you get a combination of natural and moral evil happening there. <coughs> And um, you think, how can all of this be explained? Um spiritually impossible. Now, uh, there's also skeptics, they, they, I don't want to get too technical here, but there's two forms, main forms of the problem of evil. Right? There's the logical one, which David Hume put up. And basically, it's a deductive argument, which just means if you accept the premises, then it's abs- the conclusion is absolutely true. So, um, you know, God does not exist if um, evil happens because he's either not powerful or or not good. And so so people have used this to disprove the um, existence of God. It's interesting because it's actually very hard to to prove the logical problem of evil, and even a lot of atheists admit it it doesn't work. But what they do then is a thing called the evidential problem of evil. It's a weaker argument, but what it says is, it deals with probability or plausibility. It's and it says, given the amount of evil in the world, surely God doesn't exist. So it's not just that there's evil, but the amount of evil, especially gratuitous evil. And that is evil that has no point or purpose. Because, you know, some some pain or suffering or evil may actually have a purpose. So, for example, uh, a, a scenario is um, you 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 get ill and it causes you a lot of pain. And you actually have to go and have an operation. More pain. But it's not life-threatening. But when they operate on you, they discover something else which, if left, will become terminal. Now you see, there's a case of something horrible leading to good. So that you could argue that's not gratuitous. It had purpose and meaning. But what they say is, there's so much gratuitous evil in the world where there's no clear reason or purpose that, that surely God doesn't exist. That's the evidential argument um, from evil. And the most famous uh, um, person who put this forward is a man William Rowe, and he uses two examples. and, and These are very common in, when you study this. This example of Sue and the example of Bambi. And a moral evil and a natural evil. And Sue is the it's a true story, and I won't go into all the details, but it's it's horrendous. Um, going back a couple of decades in England, um, a, a little girl she was maybe three um, she was raped and she was murdered by the boyfriend of her mother and And he says this is gratuitous. There was no point to this, and that's his example of moral evil and and the other one is Bambi, and it's a natural evil where a, a deer, a, a young deer, is caught in a bushfire, but the bushfire doesn't immediately kill it. Rather, it suffers for days in agony and finally dies. And no one witnesses it. And his point there is, um, you know, there's, there's, no one's learning. This is not contributing anything to the world. So that's his uh, two examples. And um, now I'm not going to spend a lot of time dealing with all the um, philosophical arguments, and some of you might be happy about that, they get really technical, really complex, um, uh, highly philosophical arguments, quite tedious at times. But I'm not going to focus on that, and here's why. Here's why. I believe evil is, first of all, a practical personal and spiritual problem. In other words, it's not primarily theoretical or philosophical. Um, that's my conviction. Now, I won't ignore theory, um, as you'll see, but um, I believe evil is primarily practical and, and that's what, how we've got to approach it. Now, that, that might annoy a skeptic or uh, an atheist because um, uh they use the, the theoretical argument to argue for, for God's non-existence. But I think that's the wrong approach to take. And just as an aside, um, there, there's an overlooked and, and, and hidden assumption that works when people try and use this argument against the existence of God. And that is the question assumes that the world is a moral place, doesn't it? How can you do this, God? So you're, what you're saying is, God, if you exist, this is immoral. But and but of course that assumes the world is a moral place. And so what people have said uh, to sceptics and atheists is, how can you claim the world is a moral place? If, very, if the world is a impersonal process, a non-moral process, random, you know, suffering happens for sure, but that doesn't mean how do you ground that the world is a moral place and ground this moral objection to God? It's almost you need to assume God to ground morality and then use the argument against him. But I won't, I won't go into that, I'll just put that there. Now, what I'm going to do is go through pretty quickly and um, look at some of the responses to the problem of evil. And most of these ones I actually don't follow. But how have people tried to wrestle with this? How have they come to terms with it? And I don't know about you, when you have sometimes thought about this, what you've come up with, or what you've heard from other people. So I'm going to throw up a list, and we're going to quickly go through some of these, and um, hopefully not confuse you in the process. Uh, i just say, this is particularly a problem for theism. So Christianity, Judaism... Islam or any others. It's particularly a problem for them because they affirm that there's a God who cares and can do something about it. So one of the first uh, responses is, uh, I'll just call it the Eastern response. And, you know, this is common to, um, there's different versions of it, so it's a bit hard to describe accurately, but Hinduism and Buddhism and so forth. And it involves concepts like karma. You've probably heard of karma. And um, basically, the, 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 some of the key ideas is the world as we see it is is really, we don't really see the true nature of the world, it's really an illusion, or how we perceive it is illusionary. And um, evil is actually just a subjective experience of creatures lacking enlightenment about the ultimate reality. And we're attached to this world and how we understand it, and that attachment actually produces our suffering and our craving and our desires, and that brings pain and suffering and evil. So you might have heard of this. And so as a result of this, our attachment to ourselves, our ego, we get trapped in the cycle of reincarnation, where we commit wrong, and that generates another life where we have to pay off that wrong, but during that life we commit moral wrong, and so it just keeps generating a life after a life after a life. And what you've got to do is transcend that attachment to your, your, your ego. And um, karma, this law of karma, where you do bad, it produce, you produces, um, I suppose, punishment, is something that happens to people who are unenlightened. So you need to become enlightened and eventually stop this process and get out of the cycle of reincarnation. And either to be united united with God in Hinduism, or to enter into Nirvana for Buddhism. Um, now, there's a lot of assumptions in this. But I want to tell you about one very bad side of this. And that is this. If it's this true, then your, your suffering, your pain, or e- any evil that comes your way, you deserve it. No one is actually innocent. No one is truly a victim. Because karma, is it's an impersonal, and it, it's just the way things are. Now, get this, and, and I'm going to give you an example, and it's horrible, but um, I, I've actually seen this. So, if you're a rape victim, it's actually your fault. Can you imagine telling someone that? Or if you are abused as a child, it's actually your fault. Now, I, I, I was friends with a, a lady who was a Buddhist nun for a while. She's still a Buddhist. And she'd been abused as a child. And she came to see that it was her fault. So it re-victimizes the victim. And, and I would have thought, no, people don't believe this, but, but they do. And I, and I know someone who did. Um, so there's a lot of problems, and there's also a problem with reincarnation. Lots of problems, personal identity. Because what actually happens is, me, I do wrong and actually someone else pays for it, to be honest, because I... Anthony McPherson never comes back again. And they say, oh, some say, well, there's, there's a... in Hinduism, there's, there's a, you know, a soul in you that comes back, but that, that's actually not me. Someone else actually pays for it. Um, and in Buddhism, um, there's no self, so that no, no self actually travels. That's getting complex. So this is the Eastern explanation and some people are attracted to it because it seems tidy. If you do evil, you reap evil. But I, I think there's some problems as, as we've seen. Next one is dualism. I won't spend much time in this. It's not really common today, but it used to be. There used to be some big world religions. Zoroastrianism and Manichaeism. I don't know if you've heard about them. Probably not. But it's the idea that there's actually two balanced good and evil forces in the world. and either principles or actually God's. And they are battling it out. And that explains evil. And, but it's finally balanced. It's almost like a yin-yang thing. And in and, and, and pure forms of this, evil never stops. It's a permanent part of the universe. That's the, the dualist uh, explanation. So there's no real victory over evil. And then we come to theistic responses, and, and you've probably heard of these, some of these. One is that evil is always, uh, suffering is always a result. Of um, punishment, and God is punishing you, we know there 's a whole book in the Bible dedicated to to actually debunking that idea, which is the book of Job. But sometimes the Bible does say that there's this concept of, uh, of punishment. Um, some big names have, have used this augustine he had lots of uh, answers to the problem of evil, but in one of them he said he explained the suffering of children as um, punishment on the parents in order to teach them things. Which is not a very nice view. But it's a a view that Jesus warned against using. And I actually don't have this up, but listen to what Jesus said. Um, In Luke 13 it says, There was some present at the very time who told Jesus about the Galileans whose blood Pilate had mingled with their sacrifices. And Jesus answered and said, Do you think that these Galileans were worse sinners than other Galileans because they suffered in this way? No. That's what he says. No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. All those eighteen on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them—do you think that they were worse offenders than all the others who lived in Jerusalem? No, I tell you. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So, so Jesus warns against this idea of equating suffering with punishment from God. You don't know. Instead, he makes the notice. He makes the problem practical. And he's, he, it's a warning. He says, "This is a warning of our mortality." That's what he does, and that we need to get our lives wrong. Right. So that's how he responds to it. Now, um, so punishment. The next one, and this is actually the dominant one, the greater good explanation, the greater good theodicies. And there's lots of these, and some of these ones under it are greater good theodicies. And so this is the re- this is the big answer that Christians have usually come up with. And it's basically the idea that God only allows evil to happen because He's got a greater good. And it's usually given in a very strong um, sense. that is, any evil, any evil that happens to you happens because a greater good is going to come out of it. That's a pretty um, big claim. And so, uh, you know that example I gave earlier where um, you, had, you, you were ill, they operated and they found uh, a worse um, illness which could turn, could turn ter- terminal? So that's an example of a great, a good explanation. And for that it works, doesn't it? Um, the trouble is that um, while you can come up with some explanations for some evils like that, the reality is most of them just don't work. You just cannot find a good reason for why this happened. Why did it happen to that little girl, Sue? Now, what was the conceivable greater good that somehow God needed that to happen to Sue so he could bring something else out of it? So it's a bit of a scary, actually, answer. And and when you look at um, the examples they come up with, they are... Um, yeah, they, they, don't, they don't work. Um, so that's the greater good one. and uh, So harmony and aesthetics. Uh, Augustine, again, had a version of this, and he tried to explain um, evil as if, you know, if you, you see a, uh, an artist painting a picture, you've got all these beautiful colors and, and whatever, but some parts of the painting are dark and up close actually quite ugly. But he says, you know, you need those those ugly parts or the, the dark parts to make the colourful parts really stand out. And he's saying, well, you see, God's got... If you could see what God sees, he just sees a beautiful painting. But the, the evil is necessary for the good. He, God needs the evil to bring about the good. That's a greater good. Now, the soul-making one is a, a more modern one, and it was... It, it was it's quite popular with um, a lot of thinkers. That's a, a great a good explanation as well. And a philosopher called John Hicks. And he said that, look, if God made human beings, he couldn't make them um, perfect and complete. That's not possible. You just can't create a perfect, complete being. Rather, they have to grow and develop into that. And so what God did is he made the world in a soul, as a soul-making environment. So that's that's what the world is. And see... It's an environment that people need in order to develop courage, compassion, and the higher values. And to do that, of course, you need pain and suffering and evil because you need to fight against evil. You need to try and relieve pain. So the world is a soul-making environment. And uh, Richard Swinburne gives some examples. So earthquakes, and and this is what he comes up with, uh, happen so we can learn how to make earthquake-proof buildings. Um, Learn compassion. Learn courage. And you think, well, you know, sometimes... that That may actually work sometimes as an explanation, because think about the people you know who you probably have the most regra- regard for, and you view them with a certain reverence or even they have this dignity about them, and usually you will find our people have gone through great suffering true they 've usually gone through and mastered real difficulty, and so sometimes this works sometimes difficulty. Is 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 like the crucible for soul making, and uh, we think of Nelson Mandela. Um, so so you think sometimes that works. Now this view is is use uh, a, a big word, but it's an eschatological view, because obviously if God creates things that are not that good, but eventually they'll get good. Eventually everyone will 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 sort of develop. Uh, the, you know, soul making will take place, and um, so it looks to the end. And usually, Hicks, uh, he had he, he said it, bel- it ended in universalism, universal salvation. That is, eventually, everyone develops and is united with God. And he needed to put that in, because otherwise, this view just doesn't work. And the reason is this, and you can probably think of this already. When you look at the world, does it look to be like a soul-making environment? Or a soul-crushing environment? If you look at it, it has to it both of those elements, doesn't it? And probably more often than we would like to admit, the world is a soul-crushing environment. It destroys people. It destroys people. And I've seen it over and over again. And so people think, no, there's, there's, the limits of this explanation are just too significant. And so, people started to look at um, other explanations, and I've got here... Finite theism. And, and this is, there's lots of versions of this. And basically, you've got this trilemma. God is all powerful, God is all good, evil exists. One way to relieve the trilemma is to tamper with God's attributes. And it's like, well, maybe God isn't all powerful. And if you change that, you actually relieve the contradiction. And this is the option that a lot of people have taken and pursued, and it's a very ancient one. And it's linked to God's power. And usually the way it is argued is that people deny, they don't deny the existence of God, but they deny that God is the all-powerful creator, that he created the whole universe. Because once you do that, if God exists, but the world or matter has always existed, okay, God didn't actually bring it into being, then God actually is not totally powerful. He actually has to work with what is there. Now, he can work and develop it, and so I've got Plato there, and Plato um, viewed God as a, a demiurge. He was this um, the first being, the most powerful being, but he had to work with what was there, and then he started to make the world out of preexistent matter. And he was subject to the limitations of that preexistent matter. And so there's some things you just can't do. Some things you just cannot do. Now, in the Old Testament, this is the, this is the main idea in all the pagan religions, if you look at their idea of origins. This is what Moses and the prophets opposed. And, but their versions were actually uh, either highly sexualized or highly violent. So you've got um, this sort of uh, pre-existent matter. It's like a vast ocean, usually. And then from it emerges a couple of gods. They're like the primal gods. Um, And then they create a bit more, emanate them out of themselves. But then the the gods start, there's a rivalry starts, and they basically start killing each other. And often in the violent um, clashes and the violent killing of each other, they actually create the world. And so, you know, evil is an inherent part of the nature of the world. In this view. And, there's, and of course, there's no singular God there. There's lots of gods. So it makes a sense that there would be lots of competition, lots of evil, and it just goes around in a cycle. And there's no way out. Evil is just how, violence is how the world um, is. In contrast to Genesis, where it starts off peacefully. Singular God, no one else, and he just says, let there be. There's, no one can rival him in that. Now there's more modern versions. Um, there's one called process theism. Now it's based on process the- um, philosophy. It's very complex, very technical. Do you want me to tell you about it, or would you rather just give you, me give you the quick summary? <laughs> I'm sure you want the quick 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 summary. It's it's a bit hard to get your head around. And in fact, I, I won't really go into it. But they view the world as in process, and that God has always been, but there's always been this matter. And God has been wooing it into higher forms of complexity. And this is all he can do. He cannot control it, but he can persuade it. Even um, non-conscious things he's been trying to work on. Um, so even atoms have their own, um, their own power and individuality that God can't override, but he can lure them into greater forms of uh, complexity. So this is a very sophisticated philosophy, and a lot of people actually, um, scholars, um, follow this. And so their argument is, well, you cannot blame God for evil. He doesn't have complete control. He doesn't have the power to stop all of that. And as the world develops into greater forms of complexity, it also means it can actually, um, you can experience greater forms of pain or pleasure, greater forms of good or evil. So it it resolves the problem of evil, but at the expense of God. He's no longer all-powerful. There's another version uh, similar to this and this might surprise you but these people sometimes knock on your door. They come in twos they're always immaculately dressed so Mormons uh, actually believe in a form of finite theism now your average Mormon member probably doesn't realize this but their their theologians and their philosophers uh, I've read, read the articles by them they say, you know, we have a more superior explanation for the problem of evil than other forms of Christianity because we know that God is not all-powerful. He's, he's, he was once a man, but now he's advanced. And he's far in advance of us, but we can actually get to where he is, but once we get there, he'll, he'll be far in advance. But he's not all-powerful, and so uh, you cannot blame him um, for the problem of evil. Deism... It's a little different. Now, so you, 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 you can play with God, is he all powerful? But you can play with the other attributes. And so you can play with the idea, basically, is God all good? Is God morally perfect and good? And some actually play with that idea. And one is deism. So deism is the idea that God created everything. But he he like just created all the systems, and then he just leaves it to run by itself. And he takes no more interest in it anymore. And so he's not a loving God. And you think, well, in some ways that resolves the problem, creates all these other problems. But another one, a more interesting one, is called Protest Theodicy. And this is a man called John Roth, and he actually says, you know what? God isn't totally good. This is why evil happens. He says, he says, God's not evil, but God is morally ambiguous. And um, evil happens because sometimes God just doesn't care. Sometimes he, 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 he decides to do something about it, but he, we can't quite figure him out. He's morally ambiguous. And he calls it protest theodicy because... He wants to protest against God and almost shame God into activity. So this is another way that people have tried to revolve, resolve it. Uh, there's another one that it's it, uh, open theism, and it denies that God knows all things. And so it says, "Well, God could not always know what was about to happen. Um, they rely on other things." But that's another one. So this resolves the problem, but at a tremendous cost to belief in God. Okay. Determinism. This is actually a really common one, and um, when people find out about this one, they, they are disturbed, but some pretty big-name thinkers in Christianity have held this response to the problem of evil. Augustine, for example, in his, late in his life came to this. He had a slightly different view when he was younger, and then over time he changed And this is a form of the greater good, but what this says this is theological determinism. So what that means is, God is in ultimate control of everything that happens, including your choices. Everything has been ordained by God. So this is um, with a you know strong ideas of predestination are linked with um, this. It's not just that God foreknows what will happen. God renders certain that certain acts will happen and take place. Now, you think, wait a sec, that means God is the author of sin. If he is ensuring every event, then what about what happened to Sue or that that little creature, Bambi? And and, in theological determinism, God has ordained that that will happen. Now, um, the way they provide a bit of distance Between God and the evil event, is they um, basically say, well, God does some things directly through primary causation, but sometimes He does things indirectly. And when evil, He always does indirectly by secondary causation. And so, God ordains that, say, a murder or a rape or genocide or whatever happens, but He doesn't. The people who do it choose to do it. He doesn't make them do it. But what he does, he creates the environment, or their causes, or their desires, so they will definitely choose to do that thing. So you sort of think, well, I don't know if that really gets God out of the problem. But in this situation, God is under control of everything. Um, they believe in a thing called meticulous providence. He's meticulously in control of everything, even atoms, whatever every atom is doing at every moment. Um, and he does this. Now what they do, so you may have heard of John Piper, he has a, he has a, a view of um of the problem of evil like this, Calvinism. They actually approach this. And, and then they say, well, you see, God does this, he wants to save some people, and then some people he just doesn't want to save. And the reason he does it is for his own glory. You think, how could it be for God's glory? Well, they believe that every part of God's glory must be displayed not only his love, but his his wrath. And so God obviously needs some people to eternally show his wrath to, and they usually combine this with the, uh, hell. And so um, it becomes a pretty daunting sort of explanation for the problem of evil, and um, one that's quite disturbing, especially when you get the picture of Jesus and you try and put that theology together with Jesus, and they seem to conflict together. As a result of this, we have this thing called anti-theodicy. It's quite an interesting movement um, among uh, theologians. and It's one I'm sympathetic to. I'm not quite. I don't go along with everything they say. But I'm sympathetic to them. And what they say is that a lot of these theodicies are themselves part of the problem of evil. And, and they say this is because they say pain and suffering and evil are practical problems. And so when all you do is offer a theoretical uh, theodicy, especially a highly philosophical one, you do nothing to help, you give no comfort to the hurting, and you actually don't resolve the problem of evil. And what's worse is what you're trying to do is you're trying to make evil appear less than evil. Because you, you're trying to find some reasons for it and you're trying to justify it and say, well, no, evil happens because... And they say, no, evil is evil. And so, yeah, I have a lot of sympathy for this um, movement. It's ironic because I'm I'm still going to try and give you a response to the problem of evil. So I'm, I'm not totally uh, an anti-theodicist. But hopefully um, what I want to do is give a Response, which is is not highly theoretical or philosophical, but of course the problem with anti-theodicy is everyone asks the question why, and and when 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 something really horrendous happens to you or your family or a friend's, or one of your friends, you say why is it why did this happen and you you do search for answers, and and you may realize, well, I, no, I, I don't know if I'm going to get the absolute answer, but I need some sort of answer. I need to somehow make sense of this. And so there's a limit to anti-theodicy. And, and so um, one of the things that I have... Um, what, what I try to do and what we'll try to do is find something that sort of doesn't fall into the um, to the problem or the mistake of these very philosophical theodicies, but then doesn't fall uh, into the the mistake of the, of pure anti-theodicy, and and it's like, is there something in the middle there that 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 actually helps us, gives us some sort of answers, but not leaving us cold, untouched, uncomforted, and and it doesn't seem make evil less than it. Really is now. Just in, in sort of finishing, I want to look at an initial response. It's it's the most um, one of the o- most oldest and, and most crucial responses um, in the history of Christianity, and I, ha- I think it has a lot of promise. It doesn't resolve everything. Okay, it doesn't resolve everything, but um, when you allow for that that it's not going to resolve absolutely everything, and it's not meant to explain everything, but that's an important piece of the puzzle, then it actually proves helpful. It can assist in some ways, and it's called the free will of defense. And you've probably heard of it. The free will de- defense um, or explanation of the problem of evil. Now, the argument is pretty, uh, fairly simple and easy to grasp. It says that the reason evil exists is because God created a world in which freedom is real, and Freedom of choice is is absolutely essential to the world God made. Now, God had a particular goal, and the only way he could achieve this goal, and, and this is what the goal is, intelligent creatures capable of loving loving God, loving others, learning and having a relationship. That's the goal. The only way God could achieve that goal is if he gives this creation genuine freedom. Because you can't love if you're not free. Love and freedom um, go naturally together. And and we we sort of all know this, don't we? Forced love is an oxymoron. And I'll I'll, I'll prove it to you right now. I'll prove it to you right now. Um, If I say, there's a girl, she loves me. Really, she does. It's true. You see, um, I put a gun to her head and I asked her that question. And I said, "Um, if you answer no, I'll pull the trigger and I'll kill you. guess what? She looked me in the eyes and she said, I love you. Now all of you believe that she loves me, don't you? (laughs) Now all of you know, wait a sec, that's not how it works, you can't do that. Love cannot be forced like that. Love requires freedom. So th- these these two go together. So the free will of defense, what it says, and we'll get more into this uh, tomorrow, God made creation with freedom. And that while there was no reason for any intelligent creature to choose to misuse their freedom, some did. So it's a, it's a beautiful and and elegant um, but partial explanation and so thus we can affirm without contradiction that God is all powerful, he's all knowing, he's all good he's all just and yet evil exists and this actually resolves the the logical problem of evil and so even atheists have said well this particular argument yeah it it, it works Um, of course they still believe in the evidential problem of evil like the amount of suffering is inappropriate but we'll look at that later um, but it doesn't th- uh automatically resolve all the problems of evil um and so we'll also look at that but it's 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 a very helpful response, and I think it is key um and it can help us and of course you are free to decide <laughs> if if that is the case so the next meeting tomorrow look I'm going to look more closely at the free will defence but I'm going to look at its limits and its limitations, but then I'm going to look at a a more helpful version, an expanded version, which I think is, um, you need an expanded version to really face all the complexities of uh, the problem of evil. And then, um, after that, I will look at the most extraordinary response to evil ever. A tangible, extraordinary response. So this has just been an all-too-brief, all-too-limited introduction, but I I really hope that it's helped in some way that you can see a little bit of of this argument which has gone on for centuries. And, I mean, it's so relevant. Uh, The New Atheists, Richard Dawkins, Sam Harris, they use this all the time. And you know why they use it? It is so emotionally potent. It connects with people instantly, and there's no simple, quick, easy answer. So, if you believe in God, this one puts you on the spot straight away. And it's, The question can be said in a sentence. The answer is, is really hard, but it's something we need to wrestle with, and once wrestled with, I think we find um, just incredibly powerful, powerful things. And I hope that I hope over the next uh, two weekends, we're going to to discover that. So thank you guys for listening. I'm so thankful that none of you fell asleep, some of you closed your eyes and meditated, which is, is very good. And um, I really look forward to, to um, seeing you tomorrow and, and getting, starting to get into the more hopeful elements. Thank you very much.